Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Parallel Universe of the Passion of Jesus. For Palm Sunday, or what is sometimes called Passion Sunday, the sixth Sunday in Lent, Sunday, March the 16th, 2008. Palm Sunday signaled the beginning of the end for Jesus. Palm Sunday began with a festive procession. Good Friday ended with the death penalty. Excited children waving palm branches gave way to violent mobs shouting death threats. Adoration by the crowds in Jerusalem evaporated into abandonment by God on Golgotha. Between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, Jesus' disciples argued among themselves about who was the greatest. Judas betrayed him and then committed suicide. Peter denied ever knowing him, and all the disciples fled for the high grass. After three years of itinerant preaching, teaching, and healing that focused on the poor, the imprisoned, the blind, and all who were oppressed, see Luke, 14, Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus' family finally declared him insane. The religious establishment hated him, and the political authorities had had quite enough. And so Rome deployed all the brutal means at its disposal to crush an insurgent movement. Rendition, interrogation, torture, mockery, humiliation, and then a sadistic execution designed in what was a very clear and calculated social deterrent to any other troublemakers who might challenge imperial authority or who might disturb the Pax Romana. But why did Jesus die? The Passion narratives for this week explain why. Jesus was executed for three reasons, according to Luke chapter 23, 1 and 2. We found this fellow subverting the nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. In John's gospel, the angry mob warned Pilate, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. John chapter 19, verse 12. In short, the mob said that Jesus was subverting their nation, he opposed Caesar. You can't befriend both Jesus and Caesar. They were right, even more right than they ever knew or might have imagined. Jesus' so-called triumphal entry into the clogged streets of Jerusalem on Good Friday was a deeply ironic, highly symbolic, and deliberately provocative act. It was what you might call an enacted parable or street theater that dramatized his subversive mission 
and message. He didn't ride a donkey because he was too tired to walk or because he wanted a good view of the crowds. No, the Oxford scholar George Caird once characterized Jesus' triumphal entry as more of a planned political demonstration than the religious celebration that we so often sentimentalize today. Because the Roman state always made a show of force during the Jewish Passover, when pilgrims thronged to Jerusalem to celebrate their political liberation from Egypt centuries earlier, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan imagined not one, but two political processions entering Jerusalem that Friday morning in the spring of A.D. 30. In a bold parody of imperial politics, King Jesus descended the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem from the east, fulfilling Zechariah's ancient prophecy. Look, your king is coming to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew 21, 5, quoting Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And then from the west, the Roman governor, Pilate, entered Jerusalem with all the pomp of state power. Pilate's brigade showcased Rome's military might, power, and glory. Jesus' triumphal entry, by stark contrast, was an anti-imperial, an anti-triumphal counter-procession of peasants who proclaimed an alternate and subversive community that for three years Jesus had described as the kingdom of God. But what were Jesus and his first followers subverting? For about a hundred years, Christians were invisible to most people in the Roman Empire. But across the decades, they earned a reputation as an alternate and antisocial community that existed on the margins of the state. They were a people of the periphery, fanatical, seditious, obstinate, and defiant. Tacitus called them haters of mankind. Some derided them as atheists because they refused to participate in Rome's cult of imperial worship. Others disparaged them as a so-called third race that separated itself from the first race, Greeks and Romans, in the second race, Jews. Those early believers scorned long-held Roman religious traditions. Many of their adherents came from the lower classes, and seemed gullible. They refused military service and met for clandestine rites rumored to include cannibalism, ritual murder, and incest. As one early pagan critic complained, you don't go to our shows. You take no part in our processions. You are not present at our public banquets. You shrink in horror from our games. In fact, You simply do not understand your civic duty. And so Borg and Crossan suggest that Jesus' alternate reign and rule subverted major aspects of the way most societies in history have been organized. Whether ancient or modern, 
most societies have a normalized status quo, first, of political oppression that marginalizes ordinary people. Second, economic exploitation, where the rich take advantage of the poor. In third, religious legitimation that says, don't try to change things, God wants them this way. It's easy to think of other aspects of cultural conformity that Jesus would subvert, like ethnic stereotypes, media propaganda, gender roles, consumerism, and certainly our degradation of planet Earth. And so, on Palm Sunday, Jesus invites us to join his subversive counter-procession that leads to what I think of as a sort of parallel universe. But he calls us not to just any subversion, subversion for its own sake, or to some new and improved political agenda. Truly Christian subversion takes as its model Jesus himself. It aims for what Martin Luther King Jr. called transformed nonconformity, based upon Romans 12, chapter 1 and 2. In one of the earliest Christian hymns, believers worship Jesus, we read in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, the epistle for this week, as one who, being in very nature God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Dying to self and the many demons of egoism, in living to serve others will prove itself to be sufficiently and radically subversive. Paul instructs us in the Philippian epistle for this week, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Elsewhere, Paul uses an economic metaphor when he writes that although Jesus was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor that we through his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. As an old man, Paul said that his own life had been poured out like a drink offering for other people. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. Identifying with Jesus and pattering our lives after him results in endless subversions, divestment of wealth, rather than accumulation, renunciation rather than gratification, self-sacrifice rather than self-satisfaction, humility rather than exaltation, and peace for all rather than security for a few. Although Palm Sunday marked the beginning of the end for Jesus, his end showed the way for our own beginning. And for further meditation, contemplate on Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, about the ultimate meaning of Jesus' death. God was in Christ, 
reconciling the cosmos to himself. Or again, how might what I call the parallel universe of Jesus subvert cultural conformity in your own life? What might it look and feel like? Can you point to one example, either positive or negative? And finally, for further reading, see the book by Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan. The title, The Last Week, a day-by-day account of Jesus' final week in Jerusalem. For books this week, I review a marvelous book that's actually 20 years old by Robert Louis Wilkin. The title of the book is The Christians as the Romans Saw Them. New Haven, <clears throat> Yale University Press, 1984. My book was a second edition published in 2003, 214 pages. From its inception, the Jesus movement that later became known as Christianity had a deeply ambivalent relationship with its surrounding culture. On the one hand, Luke wrote that the first believers, quote, enjoyed the favor of all the people, Acts chapter 2, 47. But that genial state of affairs was short-lived. When Paul stood before King Agrippa, the governor Festus interrupted Paul's defense and screamed at the top of his lungs, you're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. Acts 26, verse 24. It's fair to say that this deep ambivalence between Christ and culture has never been resolved even to our own day. And that, perhaps, it never should be. <clears throat> Robert Lewis Wilkin, professor of the history of Christianity at the University of Virginia, introduces the broad and deep antipathy that developed in the first five centuries toward the Christian movement, at least as that was expressed by the cultured elites. He presents the views of the pagan critics uh, with both sympathy and understanding. In particular, he devotes one chapter each to the views of Pliny the Younger, the physician Galen, Celsus, the Neoplatonic philosopher Porphyry, and then finally the Roman emperor Julian, who was raised as a Christian but abandoned his faith to become a vociferous critic. For about a hundred years, the emergent Christian movement was invisible to most people in the Roman Empire. But across the decades, Christians earned a reputation as an alternate and antisocial community that existed on the margins. People considered them fanatical, seditious, obstinate, and defiant. Tacitus called them haters of mankind. They scorned long-held religious traditions. Many of their adherents came from the lower classes and seemed gullible. They refused military service and met for clandestine rites rumored to include cannibalism, ritual murder, and incest. All of which is to say, in the words of one critic, that the Christians, quote, do not understand their civic duty, end quote. 
And so they actively undermine society with their indifference to civic affairs. As for their beliefs, Wilkin highlights a cluster of Christian doctrines that drew the ire of pagan critics. Miracles, the reliability of the Bible, the historical particularity of Revelation, creation, out of the, creation of the world out of nothing, the primacy of faith over reason, and Christianity's relationship to Judaism. In his short epilogue, Wilkin acknowledges that Christians responded to their critics. Quote, there was a genuine dialogue, not simply an outpouring of abuse. The credit goes as much to the Christians as to the pagans. End quote. But credit also goes to the critics because in their attacks they forced Christians to clarify and to develop their own intellectual tradition. Wilkin thus concludes with advice that is just as timely today as it was 2,000 years ago. Christianity needed its critics, and it profited from them. Robert Louis Wilkin, The Christians as the Romans Saw Them For film this week, our music review editor, David Werther, reviews a film about Bob Dylan. The title of the film is The Other Side of the Mirror, Bob Dylan Live at the Newport Folk Festival, 1963 to 1965. Murray Lerner's film about Bob Dylan's performances at the 1963 64, and 65 Newport Folk Festivals consists only of live footage. There are no talking heads commentary, and it depends for much of its effectiveness on juxtapositions. The film begins with a preview of the 1965 festival in which the audience is told to, quote, take Dylan, he's yours. Then, when Dylan takes the main stage that year, he sings, I ain't gonna work on Maggie's farm, which is to say, he ain't gonna work for the folk music industry anymore. <clears throat> At the end of the 1964 performance, the audience is bereft, and MC Peter Yarrow explains that there just isn't any more time for another Dylan performance. Dylan, however, comes back on stage, bows to the audience, and tells the fans, I love you. Now, fast forward to 1965. After a blistering rendition of Maggie's Farm, followed by what was then the longest single ever played on the radio, Like a Rolling Stone, Dylan unplugs his Stratocaster and walks off the stage. Peter Yarrow was MC again, but now in a role reversal. This time around, he tells the audience that Bobby could come back and play another song if that's what the audience would like, and offers the encouraging words that Bobby is getting an acoustic guitar. Dylan ends his acoustic encore with It Ain't Over Now, Baby Blue, a not-so-subtle signal that he's no longer in love with the audience and folk music business, as usual, is finished. Murray Lerner admirably underscores Dylan's dramatic changes from 1963 to 1965. But what's more remarkable 
and sadly so, is how changeless the film is. Dylan's 1963 cultural critique is, if anything, more relevant now than ever. Consider three songs from his 1963 set. First, With God on Our Side, then Who Killed Davy Moore, and finally, Only a Pawn in Their Game. Each of these three songs focuses on moral accountability. In the song With God on Our Side, Dylan chronicles the U.S.'s winning track record in war. Think of the words, the Calvary's charged and the Indians fell. The Calvary's charged and the Indians died. Oh, the country was young with God on its side. This God-blessed view of the United States' history presupposes that killing and conquering a divine... Killing and conquering carry a divine seal of approval. Then Dylan turns the tables. If the killing, conquering, blessing view of history is correct, then maybe we need to rethink another killing. In many a dark hour, he sings, I've been thinking about this, that Jesus Christ was betrayed by a kiss. But I think for you, you'll have to decide whether Judas Iscariot had God on his side. <clears throat> the second song, Who Killed Davy Moore, is all about the denial of responsibility. A boxer, Davy Moore, is killed in the ring, and Dylan calls out, Who killed Davy Moore? Why and what's the reason for? And there is a roll call as the referee, the crowd, the manager, the gambler, the sports writer, and the man whose fists laid him low in a cloud of mist all plead their innocence. These days, Davy Moore can stand in for victims of a war crime, or perhaps a child forced into sexual slavery. And then thirdly, only a pawn in their game is about the murder of Medgar Evers. This time, the twist is that the man who fires the fatal shot can't claim so-called credit for the killing. He's just a pawn, Dylan says, an individual whose thinking is done for him by those who value his life infinitely less than the death of the one they perceive as a threat. Hearing the song, I could only think of the assassination of Benazir Bhutto. At the 1963 Newport Folk Festival, wisdom was crying in the streets. Her voice echoes down to us nearly 50 years later. Thanks to Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan, The Other Side of the Mirror, live at the Newport Folk Festival, 1963 to 1965. You can get the DVD from Columbia Legacy from the year 2007. And finally, for Palm Sunday, we continue our series of poems by George Herbert, who lived from 1593 to 1633. The title of Herbert's poem this week is called The Storm. If, as the winds and waters here below do fly and flow, my sighs and tears as busy were above, Sure they would move, 
and much affect thee as tempestuous times amaze poor mortals and object their crimes. Stars have their storms, even in a high degree, as well as we. A throbbing conscience spurred by remorse hath a strange force. It quits the earth and mounting more and more, dares to assault thee and besiege thy door. There it stands knocking to thy music's wrong and drowns the song. Glory and honor are set by till it an answer get. Poets have wronged poor storms, but I say such days are best. They purge the air without and within the breast. The Storm by George Herbert Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Palm Sunday, March 16th, 2008, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.